Welcome to The Author's Tale, produced and presented by me, Stephanie Frewen. This is a bonus episode featuring readings from some of James Norcliffe's work. James is a prolific writer, and I hope that the selection you will hear today will give you some idea of how clever and broadly talented this man is, being able to write everything from junior fiction to adult fiction, young adult fiction, comedy, poetry, mystery and suspense. And surrounding the readings is a recording of Borodin's Polofstian Dances from Prince Igor. The piece of music James told us about in part one of our chat when discussing his time as a member of Clifton Cook's choir whilst a student at Christchurch Boys High School. He said the hair on the back of his neck would stand on end when singing it. I'm not surprised. First up, we're going to listen to one of his poems. This is from his book Shadow Play. James told us that the poems he did for Shadow Play are some of the best poems he thinks he's ever done. This poem is called At Fossil Gorge and is read by James. At Fossil Gorge That time of the year when the leaves fall, branches emerge in the rocks below. Brachiopods, coral from an ancient sea. The leaves are brown, yellow. The fossils are white as time. But the turkey buzzards are black and do not fall. Instead, they hover like silent blowflies, wait and dip as funerary fishhooks or gently flapping scissors wrapped in black crepe, festooning the sky with menace. A scatter of iron filings, but purposeful, black fillings in the mouth of the sky. There is something large, someone says, something large and dead in the woods. There should be a verb to harbinge, for they harbinge the worst that is to come, or seem to, as the leaves fall. And yet they hang like hinges, and what so frightens me is that something in the woods, and what it was, and what they will make of it. Mallory Mallory Trick or Treat is James's second junior fiction novel in the Mallory Mallory series. It follows an obnoxious yet comical girl called Mallory and her sidekick friend Arthur as they get more than what they bargained for when they're out trick or treating. In the chapter you're about to hear, Mallory and Arthur find themselves magicked back in time after a mysterious old man took them up on their offer of a trick rather than a treat. Listen while Mallory and Arthur try to work out a way to get out of their time travel predicament. Chapter 3. The Cat Comes Back (coughs) Mallory saw a sudden blast of blue light and felt as if she was being thrown backwards at great speed. The sensation only lasted a few moments, but when it ended, she found she was standing exactly where she had been before, on the veranda in front of the door. Except now the door looked as if it was freshly painted, although that might have been the effect of the sudden bright light. The door was also firmly shut. Mallory turned around quickly to see whether Arthur was still with her and was relieved to see him standing below her on the path, although he looked completely bewildered. What happened to the night? he asked. 
It was a good question. Seconds before they'd been standing in the deepening twilight, but now they were standing in a light as bright as morning. Arthur spun around wildly to look at the street. Where have all the houses gone? He said it in alarm. This is crazy, muttered Mallory. It's the same house, said Arthur, who from the path had a better view. But it looks like it's just been built. Arthur was right, Mallory realised. The newly painted door, the veranda with no vines hanging from it. She ran down the steps to stand beside Arthur and take it all in. The house looked brand new. She turned. There was no high overgrown hedge. Across the street, where there should have been a row of houses, there were paddocks. And beyond the paddocks, a line of trees. What happened? whispered Arthur, frightened. I don't know, muttered Mallory. But I don't like it. That old guy must have done this, said Arthur. Why did you get smart with him? I didn't get smart with him, said Mallory. He got smart with me. He got more than smart with you, I reckon, said Arthur. He got even with you. You think so? Well, he can think again. Arthur looked about, growing more and more fearful. This is all crazy. Why is it daylight? Mallory, you haven't landed us in some scary place like Aralia, have you? You know... That time when you messed about with the Tooth Fairy? Oh, rubbish, snapped Mallory. This is nothing like that. But how do you know? persisted Arthur. Mallory gave him an annoyed look, then shrugged. Do you see any gum trees? No. So this isn't Aralia then, wimp? Arthur wanted to protest that that wasn't the point, but thought better of it. I'll fix this, said Mallory. She gave Arthur another angry look and strode back up the steps to the veranda. She banged on the door once more. When there was no response, she began violently swinging the pink bucket against the door again. But that had no result either. She turned back to Arthur. See? He's too scared to come out. Arthur shrugged. He didn't think that was the reason at all. Perhaps he's not at home. Oh, don't be stupid. He just shut the door on us. Mallory, don't you realise what that old guy's done yet? What do you mean? Can't you see? He's thrown us back in time somehow. This was an ancient wreck of a house. Now it's brand new. So? So we've gone back, I don't know, a hundred years? That old guy might not have even been born yet. Mallory stopped swinging her bucket. All at once, she understood what Arthur was going on about. She looked about again. The street empty of houses, the paddocks, the trees in the distance. It looked like Arthur was right. I don't believe this. Neither do I, said Arthur miserably. But it looks like it's happened. It can't have. But it did. He looked through the goggles of a spray mask at Mallory. What should we do? Wait, I suppose. See how long this crazy trick lasts. What if there's no time limit on the trick, though, said Arthur. I mean, there's no time limit on treats. Like, you don't give the sweets back after a few minutes. Stop being stupid, said Mallory. And take that spray mask off. It's not dark anymore, is it? Arthur pulled the mask off gratefully. There's no need to get cranky. There's every need to get cranky. Everything's gone nuts. You should take that hat off too. 
it's probably not Halloween anymore. It's my witch's hat. Arthur couldn't help grinning. Dad thought you were dressed up as a pencil. Mallory didn't reply. But like Arthur had been with the mask, she was pleased to take off the hat. Where'd you get the witch's robe? asked Arthur. It's Dad's dressing gown. He let you have it? Arthur was surprised. Sort of. Are you going to take it off? Why should I? Arthur considered saying, because it looked stupid, but didn't think it would be a good idea. Instead he said, you'll be too hot. It was warm in the bright sun, and if it was morning, it would probably get hotter, he thought. I'd have to carry it, said Mallory. You could put it in the bucket, said Arthur. I'll wear it, said Mallory. This is a real mess, said Arthur. It's not my fault. I'm not saying it is. I just don't know what we can do. I'd like to go home. Me too. But where is home? Just down the street. I don't think so. If we are where I think we are, then our houses won't have even been built yet. We could check. Arthur looked at Mallory sadly. I don't see the point. Even if our houses are there, our families won't be. I mean, our grandparents are probably toddlers, if they're even born. So? I think we should stay here. This is where the old guy hexed us. If he's going to unhex us, it'll probably be here as well. Mallory shrugged. Okay, she said. Arthur was astonished. Mallory had not only, kind of, asked for his opinion, but had even agreed to do what he suggested. Her usual knee-jerk response would have been to do the exact opposite. It was a measure, he guessed, of how serious she understood their situation to be. At that moment, there was a sudden flurry of movement near the gate. A black flurry. A black, furry flurry. It was the cat Mallory had shooed away earlier. It had leapt on top of the gate and stood there, impossibly, on all fours, on the narrow wrought iron bar. But not for long. It was only there for a moment before, with a glance at them from its golden eyes, it leapt elegantly from the top of the gate to the gravel path. It's come back, said Arthur. What? I mean, it looks like the same cat. It must have been transported back with us. So what's that supposed to mean? I've no idea, but it's very interesting. It must mean something. Arthur reached towards the cat, which was now cautiously approaching, moving its body from side to side in a slinky way, never once taking its eyes off Arthur. Here, kitty. Here, kitty, he called softly. Just out of Arthur's reach, the cat stopped. It remained there, staring at Arthur, as if trying to make up its mind. Then it arched us back. I think it's purring, said Arthur, delighted. Stupid cat, said Mallory. Then she pushed past Arthur and shoo! The cat leapt back, deftly escaping Mallory's foot. High in the air, it twisted its body around and bared its teeth at Mallory with a hiss of fury. It did not try to escape over the gate, but fled, tail low to the ground, along the front of the house and disappeared. Why did you do that? demanded Arthur angrily. I don't like cats. But that cat might have been a clue to getting us back, said Arthur. Why? How? Because, as I just said, 
it was sent back in time with us. It probably wasn't the same cat, said Mallory. All black cats look the same. Only in the dark, said Arthur. But it was the same cat. I could tell. Those yellow eyes. All cats have yellow eyes, said Mallory. They do not. Rubbish, said Mallory. Too late now anyway. It was stupid to shoo it away, said Arthur. We're going to need all the help we can get. I can't see how a dumb cat could have helped. It can't now, said Arthur bitterly. It was just at that point that the front door opened once more. We are now going to listen to a second reading from James's favourite book of poetry, Shadow Play. This poem is called Hamlet Nurses His Bear, and it is read by James. Hamlet Nurses His Bear It needs must be strong and black from some honest microbrewery, none of that Wittenberg Weiss beer. That's the sort of cat's paws, cat's piss he would drink before he paws and paddles at her roiling royal flesh. This is a forthright drop, the real thing. Ice and glasses made it as clear and dark as a midsummer midnight. He'd rather mist, swirling mist to hide his dwarfish shadow. When you hold it up to the light, all you see is cloud. But then again, the bastard is right. Why should he be able to see me entire for what I am? Seem should seem merely. I should switch brews. Fining should not flocculate my yeast into a jelly-like mass. Rottenness is all about and murk. And of course the murkiness is all, while the taste is as sharp and clean as the clatter of a tankard on stones. Part three of my chat with James Norcliffe, we started by discussing his hilarious poem, The True Story of Soap, and I said at the time, I'm going to get you to read the whole thing for me, and now is our chance to listen to it. It is very, very clever and extremely funny. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. The True Story of Soap from Letters to Dr. D. The number of bubbles in any given cake of soap is not something that can be computed with any confidence. Yet, it is through such global imponderables a cake of soap can spin and briefly fly. You can clean most parts of the body with soap, but you are advised to avoid the mouth and the eyes. Sight and vision, speech and song, you cannot hope to lather such things with soap. Soap is happiest among feet, armpits, and genitals. A cake of soap will not function in air. A cake of soap will only function in water, and the water that destroys it. We function in time, and soap ourselves from time to time. To soap they add attar of roses, secretions from the sweat glands of certain muster lines. This to disguise the fact that soap once had four legs, hair, 
and adipose layers. The paradox of soap. The harder it is, the softer it makes the water. The softer the water, the more brutally it cleans. The hardest soap comes from Castile. The hardest steel comes from Toledo. The Spanish must be a soft, good-tempered people. Soap lingers. It hangs about like a pleasant smell. It waits patiently until you lift your fingers to your nose, and then it leaps up at your nostrils. The economics of soap are confusing. Is it for cleanliness we pay soap the price of dirt? Or is it for dirt we pay soap the price of cleanliness? Humans and cats are each fastidious creatures. But as we cannot easily reach our backsides, soap is a convenient extension of the tongue. Soap is relentlessly literal. Neither Pilate nor Lady Macbeth would have found it especially handy. Soap shines. Soap softens. Soap suds. In the grammar of soap, these are transitive verbs. If there were not, for example, justice and humanity, we would be able to say there is no justice and humanity. But if there were no soap, we could not say there is no soap. It is the tragedy of soap to be soap right through. Soap remains soap until the very act of evanescence, when soap becomes nothing. I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode of The Author's Tale with readings from some of the works from award-winning novelist and poet James Norcliffe. A special thanks to the publishers of Shadow Play, Proverse Hong Kong, for supplying the audio of James reading his two poems, At Fossil Gorge and Hamlet Nurses His Bear. I'd also like to thank Penguin Random House New Zealand for permission to record the chapter from his fabulous children's book Mallory Mallory Trick or Treat, which was read by Juliet Gray. I'm going to end this episode with a reading from his young adult novel The Assassin of Gleam. This was first played in part three of my chat with James. It is read by Robert Snow. The Author's Tale is produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. It is available on most podcast platforms, it's engineered at Plains FM and is made with assistance from the Christchurch City Council and Creative Community Schemes. found the grave eyes of Manfred Buffo studying him with equal curiosity. How can this house be of service to you? he asked. It was an unusual way to put it. The words this house suggested not an individual but a community and the Markgrave wanted again momentarily at the nature and size of this community whose aid he had come to enlist. He knew of the house's reputation, of course, but he could not know how much was fact 
and how much was dark legend. Bufo gestured to an oaken carver chair at the other side of the table, and as soon as the Markgrave was seated, he sat down himself, clearly waiting for the Markgrave's response. The century, began Evan Twill, is, as you know, about to end. Bufo nodded. He knew of the touching faith that people put in arbitrary numbers. Label a year and call it a beginning, or call it an ending. He could understand how knowing that his people were thinking about beginnings and endings could unsettle a ruler, especially a ruler such as Evan Twill. However, he said nothing, merely waited patiently for the Markgrave to continue. Evan Twill glanced towards the window and the line of his scar was presented to Buffo. There is a story abroad, he continued, a story of a so-called maiden who will arrive with the new century and bring with her the destruction of my house, my dynasty. Buffo nodded again. The Markgrave faced him once more, angered by what he felt compelled to report. It is arrant nonsense, of course, the splashings of the swill, superstitious stupidity. But it is a story that seems to have taken hold. There has been much tavern talk, my spies tell me. Gossip, the story is embroidered, developed, you know how it goes. And my men report that each night the walls of the city are disfigured by the word maiden. I see, said Buffo. He could see the Markgrave's growing agitation and he could understand it. The whispers, the tale passed from hand to hand, and with each passage growing from tale to a myth and from a myth to a certainty, he could see how belief in such a story could alter the hearts of men and women, make them dangerous with hope, wild with expectation. It is like a brush fire, said Evan Twill. It is growing beyond control. There is no way. I cannot see how to extinguish it. If you ignore it, asked Buffo, let the century end willy-nilly? The Markgrave shook his head violently. It is the idea of the maiden. It is the idea that gets stronger and stronger. Such an idea can move people to madness, to insurrection, before nodded once more. So that was why the Markgrave of Gleam had sought the help of the House of the Toad. He did want a death, but not an ordinary death. He was more than capable of arranging an ordinary death himself. How do you kill an idea? demanded the Markgrave. There was another silence as Buffo considered this problem. He made his characteristic cathedral of his fingers and looked for a time almost to be praying. Finally, he looked up at the angry man before him. I think it can be arranged, he said simply. Evan Twill leaned forward in his seat. There was a stillness in the room that he found calming. The pulse in his temple had stopped throbbing as it was wont to at times of angry frustration. How? he asked. Oh, very simply, said Manfred Buffo. If you want to kill an idea, first you must make it incarnate. The Markgrave frowned. What do you mean? You make it flesh. I still don't understand. Think about it, said Buffo gently. The citizens of Gleam want a maiden? Then we must give them a maiden. Give them a maiden? Yes, said Buffo, as if explaining a very simple proposition. We give them a maiden, a real, live, flesh and blood maiden. Even as he said this, he thought of his new apprentice, and he remembered the evening the young man had knocked at his door 
He remembered the older man with silver hair and a beard. And he remembered the young woman in a green cape, the sister of the young swallow. Although the light had been dim, he recalled that she had been fair and of surpassing beauty. Evan Twill stared at the old man, who had suddenly seemed quite abstracted. Manfred Buffo was recalled by the Markgrave's stare. And then we kill her, he added. <laughs>